Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we're covering biological warfare. Uh-huh. Yes, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> Thanks for the support there, Melissa. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, and a little more towards like ancient and historical rather than modern, but we'll see. True. But before we jump into the episode, please leave us a rate and review. We'd really appreciate that. It also helps people find us. It also lets us know how you're feeling about this podcast. We hope you're feeling happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you need sleep. <laughs> uh-huh. it's history explains all at gmail.com and also we have our social medias history explains it all underscore podcast for facebook and instagram where we put up our today in history and archaeology in the news yeah go check it out you can also comment and we also do episode polls on what you want to listen to and we're also considering doing another instagram live let us know what you think i'll i'll put a post up also let us know what maybe might be the average best time so we can have it where there's more people yeah yeah let us let us know what time would work best for for you guys but with that out of the way let's jump into this podcast we're going to start with poison arrows oh yeah oh yeah did you did you know about those melissa oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of crazy stories about those throughout history. I'm going to be less about the stories, which please feel free to jump in. I'm going to talk more about the toxins used. Help yourself. I shall. Thank you so much. I appreciate your approval. <laughs> so poison has been feared for centuries, not decades, centuries. Millennia. That too. <laughs> <laughs> it is especially placed fear in people when it comes from an animal such as venomous snakes it's less poisonous and more venomous in the case of the animal but still damaging and can prove fatal king cobra ancient historians actually commented on venomous animals such as vipers in their attack just you could go back to greek historians italian historians they all mention them Egyptian well I mean all we have to do is think about Cleopatra the final the final pharaoh of Egypt and how she supposedly died via black asp yep is that true I don't know too many stories oh it is even believed that some ancient heroes such as Heracles yes I am going to say Heracles not Hercules Heracles thought of the idea of poisonous arrows from watching bees circling around the corpse of a viper. I don't, I didn't know that part. Never heard of that. Me either until I read the article, until I read the article that is my source. And it was believed that there were also plants whose roots would reach all the way down into the underworld, into Hades. And they would soak up those toxic air fumes making them poisonous so it was later deduced that 
man could take the venom or the poison from plants and animals and turn them in their weapons into a more dangerous weapon than it was previously. Heracles's lore pertaining to his slaying of the Hydra actually states that he dipped his arrows into the blood of the Hydra, which was poisonous. It seems most likely that poison-dipped arrows were first used for hunting and eventually evolved into being used during war. However, those during those used during the hunt versus those used in war were, were different because of the amount of toxin that was placed on the arrowhead and the type of toxin. The, the ones used in war were specifically used to inflict a horrible and painful death. You really have your ugly, painful, ooh, let's die. But those used during the hunt was more about a quick kill because that's your source of food rather than painful. Quick kill and what some would do and still do to this day if you go to indigenous tribes that are still that still don't use technological advances and still hunt for their food is they'd shoot the arrow they pierce the flesh of the animal and what they would quickly do is quickly run over take out the arrow cut out the poison toxin flesh so that it didn't just seep into the rest of the meat so the use of course was different and therefore one was practical purpose of feeding one's family, making sure one survived. And the other was more about, you're my enemy. I hope you die in a really painful way. So let's take a look at some of the, the toxins, the poisons or venoms. The arrows would be dipped in to create maximum pain. One, one type was from hellebore. And it had hellebore had two purposes originally. It's a plant. One was medicinal, medicinal and one was, of course, detrimental. Remember, when it comes to medicine, we actually use a lot of things that in different doses are detrimental to us. You just have to make sure you're taking the correct dose. If you're not, it creates quite a problem. In the case of hellebore, there were two. There's black versus white hellebore. Although they're not actually related, they just share the name hellebore and they're both very toxic. If eaten, animals would die from it. And if gathered by hand, like no gloves, no cloth in between your hands, just by your hands, people fell ill. Well, if that happens when you're touching it, what happens when you eat it? It had several side effects if ingested. If you ingested in small amounts, you would have sneezing and some blisters. However, if taken in large doses, a person, quote, would have severe vomiting and diarrhea, muscle cramps, delirium, convulsions, asphyxia, and heart attack. Hellebore was used in medicine because it would purge the body of whatever was making one feel ill. And it was also used in hunting by the Gauls. So people would actually, someone would actually create some kind of concoction using hellebore and dip the arrowheads in it and I don't know which one's worse, the delirium, the convulsions, the asphyxia, or the heart attack. I'm going with asphyxia and then the heart attack. Or maybe I should flip that. I don't really know. What do you think? Well, you'd likely die from asphyxia. You don't necessarily always die from a heart attack. Fair point. Another one was aconite. 
or also known as monkshood or wolfsbane. Mm-hmm. I like how Melissa's just nodding her head like, yup. I'm also waiting for the nightshades to pop up. Aconite. It's an extremely dangerous poisonous plant. It's actually one of the most dangerous that we know of. And the effects of it include being a stimulant that ends up turning into a paralyzing effect. You, it would paralyze your nervous system, which then can cause drooling and vomiting. And when you're paralyzed and vomiting, you're not really vomiting. It's just kind of stuck there. And then you die because you can't breathe because of the vomit. Yeah, you choke on your own vomit. Yeah, you're choking on it because you literally cannot get it out of you because you are paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And also your limbs go numb. You go completely numb, not just, oh, I'm stuck in one position and can't move, but I can't feel anything. Now, is Wolfsbane part of the nightshade family? Because I have a feeling that nightshade is going to pop up. Um, I don't mention nightshade in this one. It doesn't come up as one of the, it didn't come up for the ancient times that I was really researching as one of the major forms of poisoned arrows <clears throat> excuse me poisoned arrows or weapons but i believe it is nightshade mm-hmm. and then there's also another aconite which is the himalayan aconite which was also lethal to animals and it was so lethal lethal that if sheep were out grazing and the shepherd noticed that there was himalayan aconite they muzzled the sheep so they would not eat it. And I actually have a specific mention of when Himalayan aconite was used in war. Are you ready for this one? Go ahead. It was used during the war between the Spanish and the Moors in 1483. Interesting. And even more recently, during World War II, the Nazis extracted the poison from the plant to attempt to make poisonous bullets. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How interesting is that? I didn't even think we would have thought of that. But then again, it's the Nazis. Other forms of poisoning of the arrowheads was via animal poison, such as snakes or spiders. A lot of cultures used, and sometimes still use, venoms, uh, snake venom to poison the arrowheads. These cultures include Dalmatians, Gauls, Slavs, Africans. There's a whole list. And people were so afraid of this. They still did it, probably because it brought them quite a bit of coin. But they had to make a concoction. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to extract the venom, the the poison from this plant. And then it's just, you're just going to dip your arrowhead. No, you had to figure out an entire processes to do all of that and create some kind of concoction that the arrowhead could be dipped in. And also the handling of the arrowheads or the arrows in this case during war is especially important because you have to be extremely careful. You cut yourself or anything and it could and possibly would kill you. Yes, sorry. Oh, I looked it up. Wolfsbane is not part of the nightshade family, but it's part of the buttercup family. Huh. But mind you, that's a very large species of flower. But yeah, no, I had to look it up. I was curious. I mean, it's still poisonous, but it's not part of nightshade. But it's cool. Yeah. Oh, it's terribly poisonous. 
<laughs> I immediately, when I'm talking about all these poisonous plants and I think of the, the garden in, in England, the poison garden. There's a poison garden? Yeah, there's like, uh, I think it's a poison. I'll, I'll look this up while you talk. Next up, uh, we're going to talk about poisoning the water supply. Oh, no, just to let you know, it's the Alnwick, A-L-N-W-I-C-K, Poison Garden. I'm assuming that's in London. I believe so. Denway. No, it's in Alnwick. <laughs> A-L-N-W-I-C-K. And that's where? Outside of Alnwick Castle, which is really far north of London and just south of Edinburgh. So it's on like the northern England, southern Scotland border? Is that what you're saying? Close. Close. It's not exactly at the border, but it's like in between, but it's not far. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's a, it's a garden. Like, I think it's on, it's specifically filled exclusively, according to the website, filled exclusively with around 100 toxic intoxicating plants. Yep. Field trip. Nar- narcotic plants too. Field trip. And it's only open to guided tours. <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, you think? Uh, <laughs> uh, you need to be wearing what looks like Tyvek suits and everything to go in. So just be prepared if you decide that's what you want to do. Still field trip. Mm-hmm. You ready for the next one? Yep. All right. So on to poisoning the water supply. Which for some reason, I'm getting like away from Toy Story vibe when I say that. I don't know why. I think he's kind of pulled to. He's like someone poisoned the water hole. I don't know. It's I, I don't know where I was going with that. I haven't seen <laughs> Toy Story in forever, but that is not what I immediately think of when I hear Toy Story. <laughs> I mean, poisoning the well is a common saying, and this is where it comes from. I'm not not Toy Story, but Are you sure it didn't come from Toy Story. Sorry, I'm having too too many laughs right now. I'll shut up. So uh, in terms of biological or biological slash chemical warfare, one of the earliest known disputes of water supplies leading to a war over it is actually known to have taken place in the ancient cities of Lagash and Uma, which are both in modern day Iraq. And there are some Sumerian cuneiform engravings in the Louvre that actually tell us about this. So around 2450 BC, the two cities were fighting over prime agricultural land and also the water supplies around it. So the two cities went to war over the land and the water. During the fighting, the king of Lagash, Ainatum, is said to have cut off the access to the canals and drying out other water sources nearby, driving the city of Uma to thirst. And one of the texts, the Stele of the Vultures, reads, quote, I, Enadam the Powerful, called by Ningirsu to the enemy of the country with anger, that which was in all times I proclaim, saying that he's in charge. And the Prince of Uma, each time when his troops eat the Gu Edina, the well-beloved lands of Ningirsu, may the latter lay him low. And according to the tale, of the engravings, the city of Lagash was victorious in their fight against Uma. I don't know if 
everyone died of thirst, but that's the first, that's the earliest known fight over water and the earliest known writings of power control over water and, and using it against your enemies. The Assyrians are next on my list. I did everything kind of chronologically. So led by their king, Assurbanipal, they besieged the city of Tyre in, around six, in, in the 600s BC. And after the battle, the king is said to have drained all of the wells in the city, but not before preventing the defeated citizens of Tyre from re-entering the city for its water. So it's also believed by some historians that the king and his men simply drained the wells to quench their thirst before allowing the residents of Tyre to come back to their city. So they come back to, it's not livable anymore. And the king once said, by sea and dry land, I took control of all his roots. I constricted and cut short their lives. Now, after the Assyrians, I've got the first sacred war, war which was between the Athenians and or well, the city of Athens and Kira, which is a city near Delphi. And this happened in around 590 BC. So the Athenians and the Amphitonic League poisoned the water of Kira with hellebore, as we said. So it causes convulsions, paralytics, confusion, dementia, all the everything you mentioned. And sores. And don't eat well, it, depending eat, on how much poison you put in the water. Yeah. yeah. Basically sores and blistering and sneezing if you only had like a small amount i don't see the athenians doing a small amount (laughs) (laughs) athenians no i don't i doubt that but it's a lot of vomiting and diarrhea muscle pains and like you said convulsions yep heart attack yep (gasps) there was following this and speaking of the athenians there was actually an epidemic of mass deaths of athenians around 100 years later in 430 BC. Now, this was actually believed that the warring Spartans were able to control and poison the Athenian water tanks as they tried to invade Athens. Unfortunately, the Spartans didn't actually do this, but it kind of ruined their reputation or made it bigger. I'm not really quite sure, but eventually the Spartans were defeated. So one way or the other, now, when it comes to ancient Rome, that's a whole different thing. In fact, <laughs> contaminated water may not have been new for the ancient Romans. Technically, possibly, they may have even been poisoning themselves for centuries because the pipes that they created were made of lead. And we all know how that turns out. But in terms of warfare, it was actually far less likely that they even used biological warfare it was very very rare the ancient roman military unlike the ancient greeks and the carthaginians believed fighting face to face rather than guerrilla warfare and deception much like say the colonial british fighting the american guerrillas during colonial times it's all and or if you're fighting naval warfare you've prior to nelson everything is straight line formation warfare anything other than front-facing battles, naval or land, two ancient Romans were actually seen as disgraceful. And in 129 BC, General Achilles was fighting in Asia 
and actually decided to attempt to defeat his enemies by poisoning their water. Again, that's not something the Romans looked to do because they thought it was uncouth and beneath them to do. Now, afterwards, he was also actually reproached by a man named Florus, who may have been another Roman general or his overhead boss, I'm not quite sure. But Florus told Achilles, he disgraced the Roman army, which had never been defiled in t- until then by violating its laws and practices of the ancients. That's a stern talking down to in ancient Roman words. Now there's a book called the Stratagematica, which was written by Frontinius in the early first century AD and actually has one of the first known descriptions of contaminated water sources used by the Roman military. Though it was, as I said, uncouth, for the Romans, it wasn't for the Greeks. There are military treaties. Uh, most of them that survived that we know of were written by Alien the Tactician, who wrote about Greeks' use of contaminating enemy water supplies since ancient times, since before the Romans even really came about. The Greeks were using poisoned water supplies and contaminated water supplies to defeat or subdue their enemies. Now, jumping ahead into the, the Middle Ages, another incident of poisoned water took place in around the 1300s, this time by the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa. What? Well, that's not the only what you're going to say. What? <laughs> during, apparently during a campaign in Italy, Frederick Barbarossa in 1155 is said to have taken the bodies of his dead, whether enemy dead or dead soldiers, and dumped them into the enemy's wells to poison their water supply. And then a few years later, during a crusade, I don't know which one because there's so many, in 1187, the Saracen commander, the very notorious Saladin, cut off access to water for the oncoming crusaders, causing their defeat at the Battle of Hattin. Now, Saladin is actually believed to have punished Christians in the area as well for those who had actually supported the Crusaders by also filling their wells with sand. Sand's going to be a little hard to dig through, depending on how deep your well is. Now, this is not something new to me for the next portion of this, but at the same time, if it's just, ugh. but it wasn't uncommon during the 1300s in particular, when you had the first waves of the plague coming through, or during any time of the plagues, really, for people to look for scapegoats. And the most common human scapegoat for plagues were, unfortunately, the Jews. We tend to normally be the scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Just look at history. Oh, yeah, I know. Spanish Inquisition. I'm not even just my grandmother would tell me stories about how she'd go to the beach, but they were segregated. The Jews over on this side, everyone else on that side. Yeah, it was weird. It's our world, too. (laughs) But in terms of the plague, as many lay dying of the the bubonic plague specifically, corpses obviously were piling up because people could die within less than 24 hours, if maybe a little more. And, of course, people were blaming it on the Jews. And I know you and I have had brief conversations about this because the Jewish population were not dying at 
anywhere near the same rate in several areas, not necessarily all, but several areas, as opposed to most of, most of, most of the general population because it is considered, it, it, it's, uh, they, did, they did frequently bathing and wash their hands well we we frequently have to keep clean we have a lot of laws pertaining to cleanliness and orderliness and making sure your hands aren't dirty when you're touching the torah so on and so forth there's several reasons um every for example every friday night for the sabbath shabbat we do it at which is washing our hands three times. It's running it underwater, which is a form of cleaning it three times. And that's before you sit down to eat. So it's a lot of cleanliness. It's also that we were segregated quite a bit and the way we handle our food. You know a lot more about that than I do. Grew up on it. Yeah. Now, in terms of Europe during the 1300s, it was often asserted I think, because, as we just mentioned, because the, it, it was part of Jewish culture to be clean, and they obviously weren't dying at anywhere near the same rate as uh, the rest of the populations, that the Jews caused the plague. Because back then, no one knew what the plague, I mean, they didn't know about germ warfare, or <laughs> knew about germ warfare, they didn't know it was germ warfare, but they didn't know about germs and microbes and things like that. So obviously, they're like, this is God releasing his wrath down upon us. We need to blame somebody because God is angry with us. <laughs> what did we do? So let's go find somebody else to blame because that's just unfortunately how humans work as a whole. I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself on this one. But there were also other times because the signs of the times or the semi-lack of science at the times, and again, not knowing about germs and microbes, Many also blamed the Jews specifically for mass poisonings and poisoning water supplies to make thousands of people sick, which of course makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But there are unfortunately several documented incidents, particularly in France and Belgium in the early 1300s, of even lepers, which is not really a transmissible disease and also takes several years for it to sort of develop like AIDS does. You know, there's just a, a very long gestation period, or I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, but it takes a while for the symptoms to appear, much like AIDS, which I think takes like seven or eight years. And lepers were thought to be corrupted by Jews. So there were also lepers around the same time. They were also being burnt alive because they were believed to have been touched by Jews. And then in addition to that, within the terror of the townspeople, they would also not just burn thousands of Jews over the centuries at a stake, believing that the Jews caused the plague as it occurred over and over again, not understanding what germs and bacteria and viruses are. They would also round up the Jews in their synagogues, in their homes, lock them inside and set the buildings ablaze. There were even times during the plague where cities throughout Europe banned Jews from eating and consuming items, food and such, that were said to be specifically only for Christians, because the Christians feared that if they shared their food consumption with Jews, the Jews would then spread whatever poison they, they, they believed that they carried. 
And unfortunately, it wasn't until at least the early 1400s, once the major waves of the bubonic plague began to dissipate, that this way of thinking slowly began to stop. But I will get into a, in, a, in a minute or so about how the plague may have even ended up in Europe, because we do know that the plague originated in Asia, somewhere in Asia. And at some point, it transmitted over into Italy during merchant ships and over through the Silk Road. And I'll get into that in just a minute. Now, this is something I feel like I probably would have known this, but at the same time, it's still a really fun fact. Even the infamous Vlad the Impaler stooped to poisoning his enemy's water supplies, which, of course, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, that actually doesn't surprise me too much. No, it's just not something I usually hear about. But, I mean, I would, for all the stuff he did, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I was a little more surprised about the Holy Roman Emperor. Just just a tiny bit, but not much. There's a little bit about, um, well, I didn't add it in here, but I can add it later, about Alexander the Sixth, Which, you know, it's abortions. I gotta, I gotta briefly mention that at some point. Remind me if I don't do that, because we didn't do chemical warfare to do this. We did biological. So, but if you want to hear about it, let me know. Now, while Vlad was fighting off the Turks in about 1462, he and his troops were actually retreating through what is now modern-day Bulgaria over the Danube River, and on their way back to their capital, the men cut off the water supplies and poisoned the wells along their route home back to their capital city. And this was an attempt to slow the oncoming Turk invasion. Vlad, although being Vlad, also was uh, unfortunately, yet deliberately, killing off his own Romanian subjects along the way in order to slow down the Turks from entering Wallachia. I mean, Vlad did kill his own people as well as those of, uh, of you know, he, I mean, the the Turks, I mean, the Ottoman Empire was trying to invade and he would kill them and he would kill his own people if they defied his rules. That's what he's known for. Now, we're gonna get into World War I for a quick bit. So this one, you might actually, if you think that the Holy Roman Emperor was a bit, what? This one might make you go, what too? So during World War I, even the Kaiser himself took to spoiling well waters. In 1917, he launched something that was called Operation Alberich, which I've never heard of. But this is actually a maneuver of the Germans to try to take land in northern France. Now, because most of the fighting at the time was kind of going on in the eastern front, the Kaiser wanted to ensure that his troops weren't outnumbered by the French troops as they were fighting on the western front. And on their march over to northern France, the soldiers, to ensure that the land would become of no use to the French, they not only poisoned the water wells along their march, they also destroyed roads, cut down tons of trees, and left buried landmines. Now, in terms of items that were usually used for poisoning water supplies, they will vary based on the culture, based on the times, and what was available. But such items could be, and would be, dead bodies, plague victims, dead animals, rancid rye, or ergotism, hellbore root, and you ready for this one? Because I thought this is hilarious. 
mandrake root. Interesting. According to one of my sources, overeen.com, the Carthaginian general, Marble, left Libyan rebels with wineskins in which he had introduced mandrake, or this happened apparently around the 3rd BC, or 3rd century. Returning to the scene a few hours later, as a quote from the source, he had no trouble taking the enemy who were deeply asleep. So he slipped a... Um, Mandrake root makes you really sleepy. So it's like putting valerian in your wine. And then the enemy comes back to fight you later because you're passed out. Wine already makes you sleepy. Does me at least. It's a low alcohol content. I don't know if it makes me sleepy. Yeah, but I always feel good. And then I'm just like, I'm really oh, it makes me relaxed. I don't know if it makes me sleepy. It'll hit me and then I'll get sleepy because probably because I'm so relaxed. Actually, I have a feeling that that the uh, the mandrake group probably works a little more closer to say like Benadryl than maybe necessarily Valerian. But the next section we have is on catapulting plague victims. Plague victims or? Yeah. Yep. Victims. <laughs> now, this is actually a lot more common than I feel like I thought thought it ought to be but at the same time not a surprise it's the middle ages with dead bodies everywhere it's and also, you're trying to introduce psychological terror along with your warfare yeah and it's also the time of the black plague well that's black death. the middle ages yeah yeah like if i can use that against my enemy my aunt my the never mind I can't even quote quote the quote right now. My brain is dead. Never mind. Just I mean, cut that out. It's it's biological warfare mixed with psychological warfare, and those are deadly combinations. During the Middle Ages, particularly, and we're talking like the 13 and 1400s, those who died of the plague were used in biowarfare attacks, and very often, and this could be um, city versus city, castle versus castle. Kingdom versus kingdom, culture versus culture. It doesn't matter what the, the warfare actually is. They're going to be used. And they were so often- forms of enemies. Yes. The enemy against enemy in whatever context you want to put it in. Now, over time, there have been improvements on and variations of catapults. So, you, I mean, you got catapults, trebuchets, onagers, a whole bunch of different other variations since ancient Roman times. So it's not specific. We're talking catapulting as just a general verb than it is necessarily specifically referencing catapults specifically. But dead plague victims would be flung over castle walls. And even sometimes they would be tied to cannonballs and then shot through the cannon into the warring cities and into its citizens that were stuck there um held up in in the city now i told you i was going to quickly get i was going to get into the possible a possible reason how the plague entered europe from asia this also slightly goes back to our genghis khan episode so there is at least one known account of the tartars which at this point in the 1346 we're now under mongol rule do you mean tatars sorry thank you <laughs> I was like, 
tartar is a sauce. <laughs> Delicious sauce. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's dinner time. What can I say? You're hungry. <laughs> Fair enough. Me too. Yeah. Especially with seafood. But the Tatars were now under Mongol rule and the Golden Horde. And they were fighting with the nearby city of Kaffa, well, semi-nearby city of Kaffa. The Mongolian Empire at this point was at its peak. So it depends on what near and far is relative at that point. But this happened in 1346. Kaffa at the time was nearby the city of Genoa because it was a port city. And you would have Christians and Muslims, Italians and the Genoese and the Mongolians and every sort of, it's, it's a mixed port city. But they weren't always getting along, because of course not. And when the Tatars were fighting the city of Kaffa, the plague was going through Mongolia. And not again, not knowing what the plague is, but realizing it was bad, they decided to take the bodies of the dead and attempt to use them to defeat their enemy. At the same time, it was also believed that the stench of the piles of rotting corpses would be enough to kill their enemies of course not knowing what the plague was and that it would wipe out many of course on both sides and the thing with mongolians as opposed to a lot of the semi-western europe they were nomadic so if they had the plague they'd be moving around spreading it around the entire empire so that's and then this whole fight with kaffa and and genoa and the the different cultures that's possibly one way that the Tatars and the Mongols led the Black Death into Europe because they would also took control over the Silk Road too. That's one theory. Or at the very least, not maybe not necessarily would have left it, you know, led it into Europe, but at least caused it to spread more quickly because you were flinging plague victims, hundreds of plague victims into this warring city you're having a, a beef with and people are dying on both sides. Now, the only known written account that we're aware of, of about this particular battle was written by a man named Gabriel de Musis, who was a lawyer, Italian lawyer, who lived near the city of Genoa, which was, as I mentioned, near Kaffa. However, it's believed that he had actually heard the story from someone else and then wrote his own narrative about it. So it's sort of like a secondhand account. But I do have a quote from his book. And in it, he writes... The dying Tatars, stunned and stupefied by the immensity of the disaster brought about by the disease and realizing that they had no hope of escape, lost interest in the siege. But they ordered corpses to be placed in catapults and loved into the city in hopes that the intolerable stench would kill everybody inside. What seemed like mountains of dead were thrown into the city and the Christians could not hide or flee or escape from them. Although they dumped as many of the bodies as they could into the sea, and soon the rotting corpses tainted the air and poisoned the water supply, and the stench was so overwhelming that hardly anyone in several, hardly one in several thousand, was in a position to flee the remains of the Tatar army. Moreover, one infected man could carry the poison to others and infect people and places with the disease by look alone. No one knew or could discover a means of defense. And we do know that the plague spreads very quickly. I mean, I think within an, a matter of hours. It reminds me of the horrible history sketch of like the, the guys that 
pick up the plague victims and then they get the plague within seconds. <laughs> oh, is that the, uh, is this a rich person or is this a poor person thing? I'm too rich to understand sketch. No, it's when they were, they were getting, oh, you get this much coin for however much for picking no, up so the plague I victims. I, I think that's the same sketch because that they go to the, the the lord of the manor and say hey there's not there's only just a handful of us left and we think we deserve a raise and everyone else is dying of plague mm-hmm. and then that same one they're all dying of plague but they're asking their lord for a raise he's like is this a poor person thing i'm too rich to understand could be i don't remember that part i mean it's horrible histories it's gonna be fun no matter what now continuing on also in the 1300s during the hundred years war which of course was over a hundred years such a weird name for it (laughs) it's a hundred years war but it lasted 116 if i remember correctly but they also used catapulting corpses too in 1340 during the siege of tun levec plague bodies were hauled into the enemy camps and 1422, during the siege of Carlsen Castle, which is what was in Bohemia at the time, the Hussite attackers flung dead bodies over the walls. They were also said to have catapulted around 2,000 carriage loads of excrement over the castle walls, too. Ew. That was a major thing that people would fling dead bodies and poop. And sometimes at the same time. That was incredibly common. And last on my list for this section, it's also believed that this happened in 1710, which is possibly one of the last known plague victim catapults, at least in semi-modern warfare. So at the time in 1710, the Russians were fighting the Swedes and what is now Estonia. And the Russians were flinging dead plague victims into the city of Reval. Literally, I got to look a little more into that. That's interesting. Because Sweden is not that too far away. That's an interesting, seems like a little interesting where you don't hear too much about the Russians fighting the Swedes. But although not plague bodies, the last account I have on this list is from a few years later after that, from 1785, during the siege of La Calle. I think it's La Calle. But uh, I don't know if it's French or Spanish, but this was in Tunisia. And the Tunisian armies actually flung diseased clothing over enemy city walls, which is a little something I'll get into later when I talk about honorable mention. Oh, Lord, you and your honorable mentions. (laughs) So the next section is about animals being hurled at the enemy in battle, but I'm also including animals just strategically being placed to harm the enemy biological warfare by via use of animals we'll just go with that get that so i went really far back like hittite far back so one of the earliest known uses of animals carrying diseases across enemy lines is during the time of the hittites And they ended up getting sick off of rams and sheep that had tularemia. And tularemia is a bacterial infection, if if you don't know. It's called rabbit fever. Fever. Not rabid, rabbit with a T. Yeah, it's a little, it's a weird name. 
and it can pass from animal to human in the same way that the Black Death did via ticks. But this was on cheaper rams. And it causes skin ulcers and can end in respiratory failure. Not fun. Well, the Hittites got it off of some sick rams and sheep. And this is in the 1300s, early, I like to say early, but it's really the 1320s, 1318 BCE. So it's really the late 1300s because we're working backwards here. And the Hittites ended up in a war with the Arzawan people from Anatolia, modern day Turkey. And the Hittites had this brilliant idea of sending sheeps and ram with the disease and to the Arzawan land. Well, the Arzawans are going through their land and they just find some random sheep on their roads, on the sides of their roads and stuff. And sheep and rams back then, and even today, but especially back then, they're a resource. So what did they do? They gathered up the random sheep and rams and took them home. Hence, the Arzawans lost a lot of people to the disease of tularemia and ended up losing their war because both the Hittites and the Arzawan people were weak, but the Hittites had had a little more time to recoup. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily uncommon at the time to shoot, whether deliberately infected or accidentally infected flocks of graze eaters, herder animals, and shove them towards your enemy. Huh weird we're just very weird that's another and then the other one i have is during 184 bce when bithynia and pergamon also in turkey by the way present-day turkey were at war of course this is turkey it's got two seas you've got the black sea and you've got the mediterranean there's a possible war or naval war that's going to occur And the Bithynians had Hannibal. I don't know if you remember Hannibal, but think of Hannibal crossing over the Alps to attack Rome. He's a Carthaginian general and he used elephants. Yes, that Hannibal. That is the Hannibal of which I speak. This is after that happened, after uh, he took the elephants across the Alps to attack Rome. He came into the employ of Bithynia and he's kind of losing. So he tells his men to gather up poisonous snakes or not poisonous. I'm sorry. Snakes don't have poison. They have venom, venom to gather up venomous snakes so that they can specifically go for the ship that has the Pergamonian king. And so they specifically, they gather up these snakes, supposedly put them in pots and hurl them like animal bombs, venomous animal bombs. They're called snake bombs. Yeah. At at the Pergamonian king, uh, which is Eumenes II, by the way. However, I'm going to disappoint and say that it is possibly untrue that this happened. I heard two different things that either it didn't happen or that the story says venomous snakes. But they really just use whatever snake they got 
they had on hand, right? Right. That's exactly the same story. Because back then in that area, you didn't have enough to fill the amount of vessels that the story is saying. Well, you might have enough snakes, but they wouldn't be venomous snakes. There are certain snakes, and as I was looking at this too, they during certain times of the year, if they're like hibernating of sorts, or if it's too hot and they're in shade, they could be a whole bunch of them in the shade. And you yeah. can take them out and put them in pots and then hurl the pots. And if you do like one snake per pot, depending on how many snakes you could find. Yes. I can't remember where, but I think it said like 420 or something pots of snakes. I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to go with it possibly. Oh, here we go. Uh, 425 quote. So this is the quote. Quote is 425 vessels strong, end quote. I'm not sure they had enough time to gather enough venomous snakes to fill 425 pots. Are they referring to vessels as pots or vessels as ships? Uh, let's see. Into a large number of clay pots. No, they're talking about the ships. But either way, you're gonna, they're aiming specifically for Eumenes II's ship. I don't know how many pots they used, but in the amount of time they had, I don't think they're going around going, is this one venomous or is this one venomous? Well, either a way, a snake instills fear a common garden snake instills fear in people today because we're we don't immediately think common garden snake we think possibly venomous could be a rattlesnake depending on where you live you know our immediately thought our immediate thought is not oh it's a common garden snake whatever it's gonna be okay just leave the garden snake alone and you'll be fine well, I think most people just have a general fear of snakes, too, because it's something that slithers rather than walks. And that just weirds a lot of people out. That and the two giant fangs. I'm, well, that too. But, I mean, regardless, even if the snake is just slithering across the path, most people are like, yeah. Well, that and, and also, if you're religious, if you're religious, he is uh, the devil. Some Adam and Eve. referred to as the devil. Huh? There's so many things are referred to as the devil. Well, he tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the apple, the tree of knowledge. Oh, yeah, that one. Okay. I was using that one in, in, in particular just because that's the one that I would go with if I were to go with any of the stories about snakes. So in the Bible, so that, that yeah. He's the trickster. No one likes a trickster. No, I kind of like coyote, but that's a whole different thing. That, that's true. Well, I've got several things on this uh, particular section. Would you like to hear more? Always. So, let's see. After Hannibal, well, actually, in referencing to the incident with Hannibal, which happened in 184 BC, this account was actually written um, a few decades later, but not super, super far off, was written by a man named Cornelius Nepos, who lived between 110 BC and 25 BC. And he, his book is actually titled De Virus Illustribus. And that's how we have the story of Hannibal. And a similar event actually happened a few years. Oh, but no, sorry. A few years. <laughs> like a while after. It's about a thousand years later. Um, but 198 AD, not BC. The city of Hatra was fighting against the Roman army. And they were led by 
Emperor Septimus Severus. Mount Severus Snape. Septimus Severus. Oh, I was hoping it was Professor Severus Snape. I mean, it was the Severus family, which is a whole different topic. But maybe another time. But the citizens of Hatra were able to repel the Romans by also hurling clay pots. But this time, instead of snakes, they held live scorpions. I don't know if I'd prefer the snake or the scorpion. Well, if they're not venomous snakes, you're not or you're not going to have an issue. That's true. But would I prefer the venomous snake or the scorpion? They both suck. Well, I will say this. In terms of ancient Rome, they hated snakes. If you look back into some of their general medicinal cabinet stuff, a lot of their anti-venom sort of anti-poisons a lot of it were for snakes and scorpions and things that were sting you and poisonous and yeah they hated that stuff technically it was against what they stood for in terms of their warfare strategies to do something like that because they again they, they deemed it to be uncouth another similar event also happened when the arabs were trying to expand their kingdom and in a siege against the city of Nusayabin, the Arab commanding general ordered his men to collect as many scorpions as possible and put them into either glass or clay pots. And then they hurled those over the city walls that they were against the city they were fighting, which then soon fell to the oncoming Arab army. Continuing on in around 1340, again at the castle of Tunlevet, the captivating animals were also employed as well as catapulting dead bodies, but not just any animals. They would also, anything that died was hurled over into the castle. That included dead horses. Now it's said that the defenders of the castle later reported saying, quote, the stink and the air were so abominable they could no longer endure. And the citizens of the castle very soon negotiated a truce. I mean, I would. Hurling dead horses over castle walls? Yikes. Horses are heavy. And will kill you if they fall on you. I never want to be stomped on by a horse. It's a dead horse. Yeah, but a living one. Imagine the weight of a dead horse. That's what I'm saying. Imagine. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just like trying to imagine it in my brain because I've that obviously I've never actually felt what it's like to have a horse on top of me. I felt what it's like to have a cat lay on top of me. I felt what it's like to have what she sleeps on top. That is nothing compared to the weight of a horse. Exactly. I've had her and I've had a 65 pound dog and that's it. I can't like the horses are the- pure muscle, pure yeah (laughs) how else do they carry our 100 plus pound bodies plus all the armor that we wore back in the day well i mean that too but just in terms of the way that their biomechanics run horses are super powerful creatures hence why it's referred to as horsepower and there's a car called a mustang there's also a car called a viper (laughs) that runs on horsepower all cars run on horsepower (laughs) right yeah where was I at? Uh, oh, you'll like this one. So according to one of my sources, Greek, ancient Greeks 
and ancient Romans were not always, well, ancient Greeks for sure, but ancient Romans were sometimes not always adverse to using some bio warfare. In fact, it's particularly known that the Greeks specifically would catapult beehives and hornets' nests over enemy walls. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So one incident of this occurred around 72 BC between the Greeks and the Romans. The Romans were trying to besiege the, the city of Themyscira, which is a town famous, or at least at the time, famous for its honey production. So they've got tons of beehives. And the Greeks sent the bees to the Roman camps, catapulting, well, at, at some point you'd have catapulting beehives and hornet's nests, but at this particular incident, they didn't catapult the beehives into the oncoming Roman army. They actually sent the bees to the Roman camps via the mines and tunnels the Greeks had dug beneath their city walls. That's a new one. Jeez. <laughs> just let them loose and all of a sudden up coming from, the, uh, from underneath you are these just swarms of bees and hornets. Like the plague just miraculous, miraculously just appearing in front of you. Ouch. I'm good. Yeah. And actually, just a few years after this, another incident with bees also happened. This is a 69 BC. The Heptacomite, I'm right not working today. Heptacomite, I can't say this word. I can say it, but I can't say it. You can, but you cannot. The Heptacomites of the Trebizond region, which is in modern day Turkey tricked the invading Roman soldiers who also at the time were being led by Pompey. <laughs> but uh, it didn't go well for Pompey. The, really? Uh, the Hepticomedes left poisoned honey along their route, which led the Romans to eat the honey and then became violently ill, giving the victory to the Hepticomedes. And if you're thinking they poison the honey specifically, no. The honey itself, though technically honey does not go bad, weirdly enough, honey can occasionally, I think it's a certain mold that causes it to spoil, if on a rare occasions. And that's what happened. Wouldn't know about that. Never heard of it, but it's interesting. And I love honey. Honey is delicious. I had it in my tea earlier. I had it in my coffee earlier. I like honey and coffee. It's pretty good. You just got to get the right coffee. Uh, espresso, latte, and some honey mixed in maybe a dash of cinnamon. Perfect. Yeah. In terms of using animals to contaminate... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Using animals to contaminate wells wasn't only just for the ancients. Of course it wasn't. The next, the last one on my list for this one comes from somebody we've already talked about at one point before mind you that could be just about anybody but specifically henry v king of england is accredited with dumping dead animals into french wells during his siege of rouen between 1418 and 1419 so it seems like at some point everyone's dumped a body of some type a dead body into a well throughout human history loverly so you have this honorable mentions section. Yes. Yes, honorable mentions. 
by and animal uses mainly, but uh, biological and semi-chemical ancient warfare. And I've got one specifically for you at the very end, specifically just for you. Oh, I'm listening. So uh, first on the list, this is not in chronological order, 1495, Spanish forces are warring with France because of course they are. And they decide to send the French some wine because that's also as if the French don't have enough wine. The French don't have enough wine? Just kidding. No. But not unlike that one uh, brief bit we talked about where they sent wine spoiled or uh, I guess contaminated with mandrake root. This time the Spanish contaminated the wine for the French with the blood of lepers. And you don't think that you can taste blood in wine? It's very metal tasting coppery i have absolutely no idea what the spanish do when they make their wine that's going to taste have it so that it covers up the, the taste of blood or is it made with blood as they're creating it which of course to make it really spoil and be absolutely disgusting or is it that they before they finish bottling the wine they put drops of blood in it which is what i'm thinking of so that it's semi-undetectable because you just got milliliters worth. Disgusting. Well, the thing is, as we talked before about lepers, it takes a while for the body to really show symptoms. And it's not exactly a very easily transmissible disease. So the Spanish, it didn't work for them. But also, it's possible that the French were very suspicious of a gift of wine from the Spanish. Who knows? And the 1600s in Poland, this one's really interesting. It also did not work out very well, but Polish troops were said to possibly try via arrows, shooting them at their enemies, which of course is nothing new. But going back to your first section of poisoned arrows, except this isn't poison, the Polish troops supposedly dipped their arrowheads into the saliva that they collected from rabid dogs. And of course, oh no, yeah, rabies has no known cure. So, not if you contract it and don't get the medicine that we have today, right? In and, time, right? And so, imagine the 1600s, you get hit with an arrow that had been dipped in the saliva of a rabid dog. Although, I don't know if it's so much the saliva that spreads the rabies. I know you can get infected via a bite, but I don't know if it's the saliva specifically that gives you the rabies. It's saliva. Oh, interesting. It has like the saliva has to connect because it's through your your own our own mucoidal membranes as well as through uh, straight into our bloodstream. Well, that would explain if you get a bite from an infected animal, the saliva mixes in with your blood when you get the open wound. Hence why they were also trying to fling animals with rabid saliva on it. That's interesting. So, yeah, according to the CDC, the quote is through direct contact, such as through broken skin or mucous membranes in the eyes, nose, or mouth with saliva or brain nervous system tissue from an infected animal. So saliva is the major form I'm understanding that we get it because it's 
do the bite. Interesting. All right. Something new. Next on the honor roll mentions is not exactly something new. It's a little more, it's biological warfare, but not so much as ancient biological warfare in a certain sense, but it's just, I don't know. So particularly in America, but this also happened anywhere in countries that had never seen Europeans, but particularly in America, when the early settlers and the early colonists came over and they weren't so nice with the natives, which was more often than not, unfortunately, they would deceive them intentionally by giving them blankets and clothing. But those blankets and clothing that had been previously used by people who had died of smallpox. Normally you'd burn that stuff, but at this point on several occasions, they collected it and deliberately gave it to the natives who had never been exposed to smallpox decimating them which of course is also the wrong use of the word decimated oh that's definitely i re- i also remember reading about this when i was doing the research i didn't put it in because it didn't really fall under any of my sections really that's why it's an honorable mentions yeah that's what you're for <laughs> you're welcome there's always a little something extra with me yep wait until the next episode though <laughs> i'm sure i'll come up with something too but It wasn't just smallpox that the early settlers and colonists gave to the natives. They would also give them items that had also been previously used by people who had died of yellow fever and malaria. How horrible can we get? Do you really want an answer to that question? Probably not. I don't think so. I mean, current day can be bad enough as it is. I don't know if you really want to answer that question. That's that's probably true. We'll just leave it at that. mm. Now, I know we had talked about maybe not touching too much into World War II, but I have one piece of information that also goes back into World War I. So in World War II, anthrax was also, was at one point being tested by the British up in Scotland, unfortunately for the Scots. And apparently they had set off an anthrax bomb on a place called Greenard Island and had tested it on a flock of sheep that were on the island. It's anthrax, so the sheep very quickly died. And it's even reported that possibly one of those carcasses fell into the the ocean and drifted over to mainland Scotland. And that unfortunately, because of this contaminated sheep, an outbreak of anthrax occurred where it had washed up that's not the worst part the worst part what's the worst part yeah according to the reports from the british intelligence the island remained uninhabitable because of the anthrax which is incredibly easily spreadable through the air the island this very small island that no one lived on at the time or very few people Okay. was uninhabitable for decades after this just one test of anthrax. It's like Chernobyl, but with anthrax instead of radiation. Or the uh, Bikini Atoll. Remind me. Um, nuclear bomb testings. Right, 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 right. right. Over in the Pacific. Yeah. Right, right, right. You're right, you're right. Now, the anthrax in of itself was also, or at least this general way of working with animals, was used to a certain degree in World War I. 
the Germans apparently would try to inject grazing animals with anthrax to give to infect them and also would sometimes pour bacteria onto their the, the animals feeds all with the hopes in, of infecting the army obviously the the allies rather than the axis but because of the various chemical and biological warfare that were going on during world war one there were actually portions of treaties that were signed by most of the countries in world war one that specifically said there will no longer be biological and chemical warfare it's kind of like the geneva convention saying you can't do this or you can't do that but not all the countries signed it or at least signed it immediately but there are very little if any known specific uses of biological and chemical or at least biological warfare used during world war ii because it was technically banned now going a little south according to one of my sources and south sudan the people of Koalit hills kept their enemies, the Arab enemies, at bay using tsetse uh, flies? Tsetse flies? I never figured out how. Tsetse flies. Tsetse flies. Which are not cool. <laughs> they hurt. They're not cool. Kind of like my freaking cat's claws at the moment. Well, if I understand correctly, but correct me if I'm wrong, tsetse flies can also work like mosquitoes in terms of transmitting uh disease yeah yeah as far as i know yeah yeah they're not fun now there are horse flies and they hurt they bite they bite hard yeah i mean horse flies like they they take off some skin they bite hard but at least as far as i know they don't transmit disease not to my knowledge yeah now, going back to England and the Middle Ages and to arrows, uh, apparently English longbowmen would stick their arrows in dirt, not just necessarily sticking them in saliva of rabid dogs, not just sticking them in blood of their enemies or plague victims or lepers, but dirt, but also probably dipping them in excrement and then firing them at their enemies piercing someone which would obviously cause an infection and back then that was a little possible death i mean also at the same time most of your injuries that were caused in war were generally going to be an infectious or possible death anyway if you even think back to the civil war even if you've got a musket shot which though technically wasn't really used in the civil war but sometimes you had the old guns if the weapon entered you or even shrapnel and took a piece of your clothing into your body, that could cause an infection if you're not able to take it out. So yeah. more often than not, people died from infections and gangrene due to the injury rather than necessarily due to disease. Now, during one of the Crusades, I wasn't sure which one because it didn't say specifically, but the Ottomans were attempting to invade the island of Malta which was under, I think, Christian rule, or at least the Crusaders were camping out there. And during the siege, the Ottoman commander had his Crusade prisoners crucified and then sent their bodies over towards the Crusaders encampment via the river, contaminating the river. The Crusaders followed this up by trying to up up the Ottomans, which is a hard thing to do, beheading their Ottoman POWs and then supposedly 
firing the headless bodies via catapults, onagers, whatever you want, what they happen to have, into the advancing Ottoman infantry. Because if the Crusades couldn't get crazy enough, there you go. I mean, the Crusades, it's the Crusades. As a whole. I mean, just... mm. They're nutty, destructive, bloody, and just the Crusades. Pointless? Actually, yeah. (laughs) Just look at how many there were. For glory, how ma- we don't even know how many there were. Like, we don't remember this. And I'll be honest, the only group of people that I know that were in the Crusades were the Knights Templar and Richard the Lionheart. Well, there was a whole group of children, too. The Children's Crusade. Yes. Which oh, yeah. also failed. Well, they all basically failed. All Come the Crusades on. failed. Well, maybe the first one i'm not sure but pretty much no but they they failed and we don't even remember them and it was all for glory and faith quote Mm -hmm. uh, end quote yeah yeah so so uh, many people died i mean mind you on both sides or and and on all sides so i was gonna say i think you mean all sides both sides i think there was more than two sides yeah, yeah, there was just so many deaths all around throughout the centuries of the Crusades that it, and for something that was so unfortunately pointless, and by unfortunately I mean just in terms of the amount of death, not the religious part. But are you ready for this last one? I'm never ready. It's specifically for you. Oh my god! And it also has to do with cats. Oh gosh, you better not make my cat terrifying for me. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, she's your little terror as it is. You can make her as terrifying as you want. <laughs> she, she is my own terror, especially at night. <laughs> but what's this one about? Tell me. Well, it's not exactly a bio-warfare specifically, but I, I thought it would interesting enough to mention. And it's something you would find absolutely fascinating. So legend has it. That at one point, at, 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 at one of the points, I should say, the Persians were fighting ancient Egyptians. Yeah, that's, that's probably down there. Yeah. Yeah, that's wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. The Persians During, did try to expand, and so did the Egyptians at one point. And I'm sure at many points. Yeah, but they never really got past what is today's Israel, uh, Western Jordan area. No. not egypt egypt didn't really yeah here's a possible reason as to some of the reason or what with some of them it it didn't happen you ready Mm -hmm. so while looking to obviously expand their empire the persians took into account the ancient egyptians very sacred worship of cats best it's exactly what i wear around my neck almost every day Mm -hmm. So at one point, when the Persians were fighting the Egyptians, not only were they obviously engaged in battle, but the Persians took to just not only, so in terms of attempting to semi-psychologically, but biologically defeat their enemies, at least in this one battle, the Persians didn't take to just painting cats on their shields, but took cats with them and other sacred egyptian animals with them into battle because 
the Egyptians were not able to bring themselves to harm the cats, lest they face the wrath of Bast. That makes sense. And with that, the Persians easily defeated the Egyptians, at least in this battle. How come I'm not surprised? <laughs> but we do, I, I don't believe that they would have catapulted cats into the Egyptian army. Because I, I think the Persians had their own sort of like of cats. So I think they would have probably seen it as a little cruel. But they definitely took sacred Egyptian animals with them into battle to then try to fight and scare and make the Egyptians submit. And it kind of worked. You're going to use whatever tactic is going to work in your favor. Well, would you like to tell them about Bast real quick? Because if you incur the wrath of Bast for harming a cat, it's not good. All right. Give me a second. I want to, I want the exact effects that she would do to you. So let me, give me one second. This is how fearful Egyptians were of their cat god. So Bast, or also known as Bastet, was originally in the form, depending on which time period we're in also, of late, early, and middle kingdom. She was originally in the form of a lioness. Some also say Sekhmet later turned into Bast. If you look up who Sekhmet was, that, that's a whole nut, that's a lioness. And she was ferocious in nature, according to the exact source I'm looking at. This is, these are their words. This is a quote. She, she calmed down more during the domestication of cats, which was extremely important. Okay, fine. Don't let me have my fun. That's next time we record. I'm just looking for reasons for to fear best. Okay. Reasons to fear best? Well, so basically her her wrath was extremely painful for you. And she was actually listed as one of Ra's, the one of the gods Ra would call upon to avenge something or against someone. So she was also known to punish punish those that were considered the enemies of Egypt. So she wasn't known for being a calm person. So imagine a really angry cat and then just multiply that by like 200 and you have Bast's wrath or Bastet's wrath. There's not a lot Bastet other than that she had an extremely terrible, terrible wrath from what I'm finding. But yeah. Unless you're Unless you're going back to her form as Sekhmet, which was a belief. And if, I mean, Sekhmet went on a killing rampage. Um, yeah, I'm not finding much of anything in terms of Bass specifically, but the ancient Egyptians, according to grunge.com, anyone that killed a cat was put to death. And if anyone even harmed a cat, or the cat died in, say, a house fire, if that was by accident, you didn't save the cat before saving your own selves, unleash the wrath of Bast. Yeah, because she was known for her vengefulness, which came from, some say it came from her father, Ra, but also some just say it was in her nature. That's, that's what I'm finding, is that it was majorly just in her nature to be vengeful and wrathful and 
basically you should be scared out of your mind. Yeah. So imagine the Persians coming at you with this fear in mind of your cat god, and they're bringing cats with you. You mean or they're bringing them. cats to you in part of battle, and you yeah, the cat god, and you you can't do any harm because I it's it's you either harm the cat and incur the wrath of Bast, or you get put to death for harming the cat, and then in the afterlife you get hurt by Bast. Possibly. Oh no no! You just never make it to the afterlife. That's true. I mean, I don't. I think you just dis. What was it? Um, your heart gets weighed against the feather of Maat, and then if you're if you're not as light as the feather of Maat, your soul is eaten. Your heart is eaten by Amit, which is the abyss. Yes, basically. Anyway, I, that's where I was going. With that. You enter the abyss of non-existence. Yeah, which of course is just unfathomable for the ancient Egyptians to even just no longer exist anywhere don't blame them no that's fair i mean there's a reason that we came up with the idea of purgatory heaven and hell in christianity and there's a reason that in before that it was abyss in in judaism there is no hell so we have like well okay in kabbalism there is it's like a non-permanent version of hell it's more like purgatory right and there's usually uh, the, the middle world, the upper world, and the underworld, depending, no, no matter what the religion is, there's usually a the good place, the middle place, and the bad place. There is no bad place in Judaism, really, other than purgatory. Right. Purgatory. Purgatory could still be a bad place. Yeah, but it's always temporary. Okay. At l- the, okay that's what I was taught. Hmm. <laughs> I, I wasn't raised with it, but just like the ancient Greeks and Romans, a lot of other uh, cultures, there's there's the place you want to ascend to of some kind, and there's the place you don't want to go. Yeah, and no one wants to go into an abyss for eternity. You literally, your soul ceases to exist. No one, you, you cease to be anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's not cool. You You don't have a chance to enter the field of reeds in this case, and you don't like you have no place for atonement nothing now we're gonna leave it on that for now because um and uh a couple weeks lauren's gonna go on an hour-long rant about ancient egypt and i'm just gonna let her talk i'm gonna have so much fun you're gonna hate it me one specific ancient egyptian item just one specific one which i'm just gonna rant the entire time (laughs) out hard you're gonna be listening to my voice for a very long time (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's gonna be fun or not i don't i don't know it's gonna be fun for me you're gonna be like what the heck she just keeps going on yeah the listener listeners you're gonna have to listen to her talk for pretty much the whole hour by herself because i'm just gonna let her go (laughs) they're stopping her when she starts talking ancient egypt anyway i mean no (laughs) there's no stopping no no you can't you can try but you will not succeed no but on that note (laughs) on that note (laughs) 
Uh, well, I guess that'll do for this is episode of History <laughs> Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. Bye. Bye.